and we're back. It's the My Favourite Film Podcast with me, Gav Smith. It's been a little while, we've been off air, but this is us back with our 2022 Halloween special. Ooh, scary. This year's Halloween special, four guests. I had a chat with Dr. Vincent Game, who will be joining us later on for some specials, more about that at the end. And then there are a little few contributions from Cat Hughes, who is the reviews editor at Hollywood News. Rob Simpson from The Geek Show and Ben Jones, who also works with The Geek Show and is a film reviewer in his own right. So a little bit from each of those. Here's my chat with Dr. Vincent Gain about his favourite five horror films. Vincent, you're going to tell us about your top five horror films, I believe, is what we're going to try and do. Yeah, Um, that's all we're going to do. We'll see what's in there. Um, You are going to join us later on in the series for... Your proper favourite film, but this is going to be your favourite horror films. Maybe we'll talk about that one later, I don't know. Anyway, um, what would be your first film as your favourite horror film, or your least favourite of your top five? I don't know which way you want to go around. <laughs> I'm going to do this in ascending order. So Ooh. I've picked five, yep. um, five horror films that I think are brilliant and that um, I might well watch over Halloween. Um, so... Coming in at number five, and I will admit right up, I'm well aware that my choices are very much those of <laughs> me being a basic bitch, but what are you going to do? We're okay with that. Um, my list, my list, my rules. Um, yeah. So coming in at number five, um, perhaps surprisingly low for some, um, mm. but that doesn't mean it's not a masterpiece. 1974's The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Oh. Now, of course, the reputation of this film precedes yeah. it both in terms of being one of the most unsettling and and distressing uh, films ever produced, while also being far less gory and or bloody than its title might suggest. It is, yes, yes. Now, I've only watched The Texas Chainsaw Massacre twice, interestingly. Um, I watched it on video. Video. Yeah. Yeah. I saw the video first time as well, yeah. Um, well, by long ago, I mean, it was probably about 2006 or seven. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I found it certainly quite distressing. Yeah. Um, and then I actually um, organised a screening of it at my local art cinema, where yep. I'm in Norwich, where I lived at the time, um, for which I also gave an introduction and did a Q&A afterwards. Yeah. Um, this was once I'd you know, read a lot more about the film, heard other podcasts talking about it, yeah. and had a much better idea of what it was all about. Um, and it's one of those interesting experiences, which I will come back to shortly, um, <laughs> of a film takes on, has a, be- a more significant impact, I think, when you see it in a cinema. Um, because, yeah, seeing it on, on TV, it was like, yeah, okay, that was unpleasant. Um, and then watching it in a cinema with an audience feeling the sort of the tension and the ah mm. um, moments in that, I think gives it a it gives it a stronger feeling. Yeah. Um, and I do think that after that screening, as I said, when we held a Q and A, um, but I did I did feel we needed to just give everyone a bit of a, a moment to take a breath because Absolutely. it is a relentless film. I mean, once it gets started, wow, it does not stop. No. Um, yeah, it's, it's grimy as well, isn't it? It's yeah, just it's, you can feel the dirt oozing from the cinema, can't you? It's, it's absolutely, yeah. You yeah. can feel sweat on everyone, yeah. and yeah. They, and yes, it's got a, you know incredible, um, uh, terrible production history. Yeah, um, you know, I think that the only thing you know that could be possibly nearly as bad as the experience of the characters would be his 
that to the actors yeah, and the crew. I think so. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, but hey, and and what I think is also interesting to note is that it is very much lightning in a bottle. Yeah. I think uh, because it was such a um, awful production situation, that's what actually led to the film footage being so awkward, and therefore, yeah. well, this is just about what we all we can do with it, and it turned yeah. into an unintentional masterpiece. Yeah. Notable, I don't think Toby Hooper ever um, directed anything as effective as that. Yeah. And apparently his feeling was always that the Texas Chainsaw Massacre was meant to be a comedy. Um, now, granted, there <laughs> really? are some... Yeah, there are apparently... Now, there are some moments in it that one yeah, can find yeah. laughing, laughable, because they're, you know, that's it's so extreme and absurd. Yeah. But I think film is comedy as a whole, trying to make that well. And although I've not seen the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2... No, um, I wouldn't. If it played <laughs> like a comedy, I don't think. I don't know if I want to. But mm. uh, yeah, my number five, um, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. A very good choice. I believe it was on my choices last year when we did Halloween special as well. So there you go. In good company. Mm. So what, therefore, would be your number four? My number four, um, I think, out of my top five is probably the one I saw first, which I would have seen at some point um, in the 1990s um, on, um, again, on videotape and watch it a few more times and then was able to see it um, in a cinema. Uh, Notably, I would have seen it on April the 26th, some (laughs) years ago. I don't know the year, but it would have been April 26th. Why? Because that is for 26th. LV426, or I am referring to 1979's Alien. Every so often, um, cinemas will do a screening of Alien and quite often Aliens as well on on April the 26th. Yeah, Alien is is a film that continues to um, enthrall. Um, A film that I can watch repeatedly and I still spot new things. Usually, Um, in the production design because it is such an incredibly designed film. Um, yeah. Obviously, the designs of H.R. Giga of yeah, yeah. Xenomorph itself yeah. um, are the stuff of a uh, movie legend. Um, there has possibly never been a creature put on screen as fundamentally terrifying as the Xenomorph. Everything about that creature is frightening. It's got teeth and then it's got more teeth it's insectile it's arachnoid-esque it's it's part it seems partly spider partly scorpion it's also reptilian it had everything that could make you go is there um oh and when it gets born it kills you great yeah Yeah. um in a spurt of blood exactly yes um but on top of that i think uh even aside from the alien itself, the Nostromo is yeah. so beautifully designed. Um, it's one of those examples, I think, of something that is both beautiful and terrible yeah. all at once. It's you know, it's like the sublime, um, and it's uh, and Ridley Scott's uh, direction is very paced, yeah, very measured, yeah, um, very deliberate, yeah. and it feels very much that um, he's taking us by the hand shall we say through yeah. these uh, space traveling corridors yeah. um, and onto this alien planet and you know 
yes, these anamorph is menacing, but you know what? The whole environment is menacing yeah. as well. It's the perfect um, hornet house, isn't it? remembering that. It is, yeah. And it's interesting that Alien is a science fiction film as well as a horror yeah. film, but it doesn't need to be science fiction. No. You could have the film could have been set, say, on an oil rig um, yeah. or just a ship at sea, and yeah. do, as has been done. And it brings up this weird creature. It doesn't need to be extraterrestrial. It yeah. is because let's face it, that alien creature doesn't come from another planet. It comes out of our nightmares. Absolutely. Brilliantly put. Oh, and if one of your co-workers happens to be sipping this weird milk-like liquid, <laughs> don't trust him. <laughs> Take a little break from talking to Vincent there, and we'll have a little bit from Rob Simpson from The Geek Show. Hello, I'm Rob Simpson. Um, host of the Directors Uncut podcast, and I was on the Ring episode oof, way back, way, way back. Um, and Gav asked me to do a top five Halloween movies, or a five Halloween movie playlist. Um, and let's just get into it. So for my five, I decided to go for a little bit off the beaten track because everybody would recommend the same sort of things. And it's not very interesting to say, uh, Dawn of the Dead, Suspiria, um things like that you know it, it's played out people who will have seen that have already seen that so i decided to go off a bit off the beaten track with my five the second no the first movie that i am picking is called night of the eagle it's from 1962 by sydney hayes also called burn which burn which let's be honest much cooler title um, and it's a 1960s movie. I guess that the likes of M.R. James would really have dug because he liked his movies, or his stories, I should say, where somebody who is very intellectual has has things happen to them that they deserve, maybe. Um, in this case, it's a university or college lecturer who is looking for tenure. There's also other people in the faculty who are competing for that. Um, very proud of his work. Very proud, pragmatic man. Um, and he learns that his wife, for years, has been practicing witchcraft, using magical charms, protective devices. Um, and being the very matter-of-fact man that he is, this is Peter Wingard, who is in the main role, and Janet Blair, who is his wife. Um, he tells her, get rid of all of that rubbish. I achieved everything with my own power, with my own intellect. Um and what happens is, well, it turns out that he wasn't quite so good after all, because all sorts of things start happening. Chaos unfolds in this feisty, musty university campus. Um, and things start falling to pieces for him, really. And it all pins, or it leads, I should say, to this great final sequence um, around the university when um, Peter Wingard is just wandering around, trying to get to the heart of what is causing all of these things to happen. And he's eventually chased down by an eagle. It's some great miniature work, great scenes, and it, it doesn't look campy like other movies do, but it's just the sort of the style of this is something that I'd love to see more, sort of academic gone wrong horror. And it's just a great little lost lost charm, really, from the 1960s. And I think people, more people need to see this one. This is a, an interesting, cool film. Um, number two... Keeping that same fame alive, um, from 1982, from Australia, uh, Tony Williams, I think he mostly works in documentaries and the real uh, horror movie. This is called Next of Kin. 
and simple premise for this one. Um, a daughter inherits a home for the elderly. And when she gets into that home for the elderly, all sorts of weird things start happening in the middle of the night. Um, it's not really explained that well, but that's because of the vibe that it, it has. It feels, I think I wrote at the time, it feels somewhere like uh, Italian horror and um, David Lynch. It has that sort of magical weirdness about it. And it has some great scenes in there too of, I think there was a scene in the courtyard which particularly stands out. Again, it's been years since I've I've seen it, but it's one of these movies where it's atmosphere, it's it's flavorings, and the way it plays around with horror as a, as a thing to scare people rather than a thing to have gore or jump scares. I think Next of Kin is for me since I saw it, it's one of the finest horror discoveries that I've I've watched in in many a years. Um, so yeah, Next of Kin, uh, moving to Belgium next is 1971's Daughter of Darkness by uh, Harry Kumel. Kummel. I don't know how you pronounce his name. Kumel. But. Um, and this is another simple one. It, it features a young couple who go to a hotel in the middle of off-season and completely empty. Beautiful, uh, beautiful hotel. I mean, that's the theme of this movie through and through. It's just the aesthetics of this thing are absolutely gorgeous. And... Um, also turning up at that hotel, I mean, it's it's a style, are two lesbian vampires. <laughs> but this is the sort of uh, Euro horror where it's it's about a stylized nightmare space out of sync with reality. Um, it's it's like David Clin- David Lynch was doing sexy movies, sexy horror movies. Um, so yeah, it's it's just one of these. I don't know how to really describe this style of movies to somebody who might not have seen them before, but it's just this distant sort of style of danger. These people are very, very erotic, but at the same time, you know that if you get too close to them, things will end very, very badly for you. And it plays with that theme. It's got an absolutely gorgeous aesthetic style. The hotel, the way the characters dress, the characters themselves are beautiful. It's just, yeah, it's... Euro, I don't want to call it Euro sleaze, but it's the very best sort of thing that Euro horror can do. Um, next, something a bit more contemporary and something which probably goes more comedy than horror, but and also it's a movie which has been um, disliked by a lot of people, but I, I loved it. Um, Josh Rubin's 2021 movie uh, Werewolves Within, based on a video game of all things. Um, basic premise is very very isolated part of America. As a new policeman played by Sam Richardson. And in going to... Well, there's, there's a storm. And they go to a hotel where the storm sort of traps them and they can't leave. Spin on a bit. And outside, they find a body. A body which is being killed by a werewolf. And they have to come to terms with the idea of who is the werewolf within. And I don't want to make any excuses for this. But honestly, it's just a good comedy horror. When I think of Halloween movies, I think of movies that are just fun to watch. When I think of Halloween movies, I just think of movies that are fun to watch. And as far as comedy horror in the past five years, I've never not had more fun with anything other than Werewolves Within. I know a lot of people hate it, and and that's fine. But it's just it's that right vibe for comedy horror. I think where there's, there's horror in there, there's werewolves in there. But at the same time, it's just a load of charming, funny, well-written characters. I mean, you've got Guillermo from What We Do in the Shadows in there. And he's just one of many people. So it's it's just fun. 
And that's what I want for my Halloween movies. And the last one is an anthology movie, which again, I think is another good uh, staple for a Halloween movie. Um, this one was by uh, Rusty Kundiev, and it's 1995's Tales from the Hood. Um, this The wraparound for this uh, revolves the funeral director who uh, tells strange tales of some of the people he, who turned up dead in his um, funeral home. Uh, the guy who all pins around is uh, Clarence Williams III. And the stories are very, very diverse. Um, the first one, Welcome to My Mortuary, uh, there's Rogue Cop Revelation. Um, boys do get bruised and KKK comeuppance. I'm not going to go into each of them too much, but there's one in which somebody who has that ironic... Uh, res- that ironic... Um, payback for the actions of their life there's, there's two that stand out sorry uh, there's one where somebody eventually becomes graffiti on a wall and they're just sort of contorted and splattered on a wall as paint and the other one involves uh, a plantation owner and very small characters like gremlin like creatures and if you like those sort of 1980s creature features that'll that'll satisfy too but as far as uh, anthology movies this is one of the big discoveries i think in the past couple of years it's really found a second life and uh, yeah, they're the five horror movies that I recommend for Halloween. Uh, Night of the Eagle, Next of Kin, Daughters of Darkness, Werewolves Within, and Tales from the Hood. So I hope there's something for the listeners to enjoy there. Number three on your list would be... Let's do impressions again. <laughs> Little pigs, little pigs, <laughs> let me come in. <laughs> yeah. Yep, from one extremely eerie, haunting environment to another. Yes. As number three is 1980s The Shining. Brilliant. Um, there's a pattern here because yeah. uh, The Shining was a movie I saw again on TV in the early 90s, the first time. And then after that, I repeatedly watched it on larger screens. So I saw it on a regular sized TV. Then I saw it on a bigger TV. <laughs> then I saw it in a lecture theater. And then I saw it in a cinema. And then I saw it in a bigger cinema. <laughs> and, and I messed up the pattern by watching it on DVD. Um, well, streaming, sorry. Went um, back to a small one. Yeah. But what's interesting is each time, I, this was a film that when I first saw it, I didn't entirely get it. I yeah. think I thought it was, okay, yes, well, he, he goes crazy and he's, running around with an axe that's yeah. quite menacing and but of course around the same time like many people my age i also saw the shinning on the simpsons which you know takes away a lot of the fear it does yeah but the shining is a film that very much improves in a larger space not least yeah. i think because of the sound yeah um it is very much a film of a threatening environment a lot like alien i suppose um, but whereas Alien is very much about this is an entirely alien environment because it's you know, in space, um, the Shining it sh- it turns things into it makes things menacing that don't have to be. Yeah. Um, Stanley Kubrick's skill um, in cinema was to make you stare, to make you look long and hard at things, and he managed to make empty corridors and a carpet 
and yeah. the same phrase repeated over and over again into something yeah. truly menacing. Indeed. Now, I hear the criticisms of The Shining, and I understand them. Oh, it's too cold. It's not enough emotion in it to really be engaging. Um, uh, or that, um, you know, we know from the start that Jack Nicholson is completely crazy. So small yeah. wonder when he goes completely crazy. But here's the thing. I think that what The Shining does is it presents this environment of unreason, this environment of madness where, yeah, okay, fine. Um, Jack may have been gaga before he got there, but <laughs> he's not the only thing there that's crazy. No, no. There's also a lot of criticisms of Shelley Duvall as Wendy Torrance, but I think she's actually really engaging. And mm. I feel her pain and her fear as yeah. that progresses because she is trapped in that environment. And you know, as far as a film can do, I feel trapped there as well. This yeah. is a, and and because so much of the menace and the horror and the malevolence um, of the Overlook Hotel is not defined, it is a bad place. You know, yeah. Influenced largely by um, Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House, yeah. it is a very bad place, and this feeling of badness is palatable. Yeah, that's why. I put the shining where I do at my yes. number three. And do you know what? I believe later on this year, if you want to hear more of Vincent talking about the shining and myself, join us on the Geek Shows Directors Uncut, where we'll be talking about Kubrick's 2001 and the shining, I think. Don't Indeed. know when that's coming and out, but it is later on yeah. after Halloween, definitely. And on another episode, I will indeed be on talking about Alien. Ah, there you go. As well as another Ridley Scott film to be confirmed. Yes. I think I'm on one of those as well. I'm not sure it's the alien one I'm on, but there you go. Mm -hmm. That's a little plug for Directors Uncut. I'm sure that'll make Rob very happy. Time for another short break. This time, Cat Hughes, the reviews editor at The Hollywood News. And this is her top five horror films. Hi, my name's Kat Hughes. I am a film journalist that specialises in writing about the horror genre. I primarily write for thehollywoodnews.com, but I also contribute to any outlet that's willing to let me talk about the genre that I love. When I was first asked to select a, a playlist for this podcast, my mind immediately went to mush. How on earth do you whittle down these hundreds of thousands of, of horror films down to just five? And five films that you want to suggest to somebody to watch on the most important day in a horror fan's year, Halloween. There's so many options and paths and routes you can go down. Do you go classic or contemporary? fun or frightening? Do you stick to one type of subgenre, like the body horror or the, the teen horror, or maybe even just focusing on one monster? You know, there's plenty of zombie films. Or do you, do you mix it up? Do I create a list that can include all the family? Or do I keep it strictly for grown-ups? There was so, so many different paths and journeys that I went on but eventually after much soul searching and agonising I have decided to tentatively call my list the Halloween of Discovery. Now if you are a very keen fan of horror films you'll have heard of everything on this list though you might not necessarily have seen everything. It's my hope that this list might finally give you that push to to check some of them out. 
if you're newer to, to horror. This is a nice little list that's just slightly off of the beaten path of the norm and can help enrich that uh, new new route into into the genre that you're you're going on. So my first choice is the 2015 film The Final Girls by Todd Strauss Schulman. It's available to rent on on most digital platforms. It follows a story of a young woman, Max, played by uh, Tessa Famiga, that's the younger sister of The Conjuring Universe's Vera Famiga, and she is grieving the loss of her mother, who's played by Melan Ackerman from the Watchmen film. Her mother was a, a famous screen queen from the 1980s, and during a retrospective screening of that film, Max and some of her friends find themselves pulled into the world of her mum's most famous film, a la Last Action Hero. Once in the in the world, she is reunited with a version of her mother and the two women must work together to ultimately take down the maniacal killer of the of the story. So the final girls is essentially Last Action Hero meets Friday the thirteenth, with the tongue in cheek humour of something like the scary movie series, but not as spoof heavy. It's light, bright and fun and a great way to kick off Halloween. I mean, you don't want to be sitting there watching five back-to-back scare fests. You need something to, to ease yourself into the day. You know, there's there's plenty more horror to come. And plus, if you're going to be sticking five films on in a day, you're probably going to be starting sort of early to mid-afternoon, which means you need a horror film that's going to work in the day. And not all horror films do. Some of them, you need that special magic that darkness brings. But this horror comedy can be easily enjoyed during the the daylight hours. My second selection is a very different film, not quite so much fun. Incredibly well made, but definitely not a film that could easily be described as as fun. And that is the 2019 film uh, St Maud from director Rose Glass, which is currently available to stream on Amazon Prime Video. Now, depending on where you were in the world, St Maud was released at various stages during the pandemic. Some people got it in cinemas, other people it went straight to streaming, which I think contributed a lot to it passing many people by, which is a massive shame because it really is a film that that deserves to be seen. It's the feature debut from Rose Glass and once you see the film you'll realise just how hard it is to get the head around it, that fact, because it's so incredibly intricately constructed. There's no fat on this film at all. It It's lean and everything present in the, the camera angle and the sound design enriches the story in some way. It's uh, a psychological thriller with heavy horror imagery and features one of the boldest ending shots in recent history. St Maud ends with an almighty bang and the, the final image instantly sears into the retinas. I mean, it's been months since I last saw it and still occasionally when I shut my eyes, there it is. The story follows a softly spoken palliative care nurse, Maud, played by Moisfield Clark, who's doing amazing work in the Lord of the Rings series at the moment. As she moves into the house of a, a famous terminally ill dancer, uh, Amanda, played by Jennifer Ely, to help make her more comfortable in her last days. An audition, excuse me, although initially at odds, thanks to Maud's very religious sensibilities. 
the pair soon strike up a, a really close bond, a really nice, a nice little friendship starts to starts to uh, happen as as Maud breaks her way through Amanda's very stern armour. But as these films always do, something something happens and the two fall out. And it's left to um, to Maud, with the help of God, to do everything in her power to save her charge. Because something has happened to Maud prior to the audience meeting her. And she believes that the Lord Almighty saved her for a reason. And that reason is to help save others. She's She believes herself to as the title would suggest, be some sort of, on her way to being some sort of saint. She's a, almost a, a, an angel from God who is, is doing, is doing his, his work. And Amanda is somebody that he wants with him and not with the other guy. And it's down to Maud to ensure that that happens. What Rose Glass does that's really, really impressive is she plays with the audience and leaves them questioning what is real and what isn't, whilst at the same time opening up some really important conversations about mental health, its treatment, and those that slip through the cracks. I've placed St Maud second on my playlist because if you're watching The Final Girls early to mid-afternoon, then by the time you put St Maud on, it'll still be it'll still be a little light, but by the time you finish, it will be dark, and that nicely mirrors the uh, the journey that Maud goes through in the film. My third pick is another film from the year 2015 and that is Corin Hardy's The Hallow which is currently available to stream on Shudder. Set deep within the Irish forest, The Hallow introduces us to a young couple, Adam and Claire, along with their infant son. The family have relocated due to Adam's work which involves marking trees for destruction, something that isn't going down too well with the locals. The land that Adam is working on is also the subject of a local folklore and when strange things start happening to the couple one night they must protect their son and themselves from an unknown threat. Now, Hardy is best known, I guess, to most people now for having made The Conjuring Universe's uh, The Nun film or, if you're not necessarily into your horror, he is also one of the directors involved in the Gangs of London TV series. But The Hallow is where it all began. And similarly to St Maud, it's a really remarkable feature debut. The Hallow manages something that a lot of horror films try and fail to do. It remains grounded in reality. The story deals with fairies and goblins and various supernatural magic creatures, sure. Yet it always keeps one foot in the in the real world. As magical as these critters are, there is also a degree of science attached to proceedings, which makes the threat seem more tangibly plausible. And it also helps that it leans heavily into several aspects of horror. The primarily one, primary ones being body horror, spooky things in the woods, and every parent's worst nightmare: what if your child was taken or changed? The standout scene, though, for me involves a broken down car. Hardy just massively works the, works the tension and no matter how many times I watch the film, that scene always manages to, to get a scare or two out of me. Uh, I've watched this film multiple times and it's, it's, it's ended up in my regular, regular rotation, mainly because somehow Hardy has managed to capture the essence of autumn within, within the frames and therefore Halloween 
is the perfect time to to sit sit down and watch it. I highly recommend recommend settling down with a mug of mulled wine before you uh, stick this one on, just to get the the added autumnal uh, autumnal vibes. My penultimate pick is a slightly more recent film, and that is David Bruckner's 2020 movie, The Night House, which is currently available in the UK on Disney+. Now, David Bruckner is a director that's currently having a moment, as he is the uh, mind behind the latest Hellraiser film, which, on all accounts, is getting really positive reviews, which I believe is the, the first Hellraiser to be viewed pos- reviewed positively, since the sequel, which means that this has been a very long time coming. Prior to making Hellraiser, though, he he made The Night House, which stars the amazing Rebecca Hall as a widower who, whilst grieving her husband's suicide, starts to uncover another side to him. He worked as an architect, and she discovers plans to a house that looks identical to hers, but it's flipped, it's, it's, a, it's a mirror image of the house. And whilst looking into that, she finds herself going down a very dark rabbit hole. At the same time, there's a presence visiting her at night, but is it her husband or is it something more sinister? Bruckner plays the film perfectly. It's so pitch black and eerie. It's, it's two hours long, but it's honestly one of the quickest ways to spend two hours. The night house is incredibly tense. Bruckner maintains maximum tension and dread right from minute one. He doesn't really give the audience a chance to breathe. Add to that an award-worthy performance from Rebecca Hall and some very strong Clive Barker vibes. I mean, it was no surprise to me when he was announced as the director of the Hellraiser film because there's so much of his imagery here. If you've read Clive Barker or seen Clive Barker films, you are going to pick up on and a lot of elements within, within the night house. And that brings me onto my final selection of the uh, of the day and that is the 2016 film The Autopsy of Jane Doe by Andre Albadal which is currently available to rent on various digital platforms. Now Andre Albadal is a director who burst onto the screen with his Norwegian found footage film Troll Hunter and most recently helmed Scary Stories to Turn the Dark which was an adaptation of a popular US book series. In between those he created The Autopsy of Jane Doe a film that slipped by many, which is a massive shame as it's such a well-written and constructed movie. Now, whereas The Final Girls works perfectly well during the day, The Autopsy of Jane Doe has to be viewed as late into the night as you dare. This is a film that you definitely want to see Halloween out with. It stars Emile Hirsch and Brian Cox as a father and son coroner business who get more than they bargain for when receiving a body of an unknown female. As the autopsy begins, they discover all manners of horror inside what on the surface appears to be a pristine body. Whilst the pair try to ascertain the certain the, the cause of death, weird things begin happening in the morgue. Anyway, when I say there's horrors within this body, she is burned on the inside, she is heavily scarred, there's clear there's clear indications of trauma, but no reason is easily easily forthcoming. What makes the autopsy of Jane Doe so much fun is that Andre Overdor clearly understands that nothing could be scarier than a horror film set in a morgue, and he takes great delight in teasing the audience. 
Sound and stillness are both big components and the simple dinging of a bell has never been more blood-curdling. Playing quite a lot like a detective drama as the father and son try to unpick the mystery of the one before them, this isn't your typical spook fest. Yes, there are these scary moments and that bell dinging is... It's heart-stopping. It's just, it comes out of nowhere and it's such a well-executed jump scare, if you want to call it that. By setting itself in the world of science, the autopsy of Jane Doe opens the door for some really, really creepy moments as these men of science must come to terms with the possibility of something other. You know, horror films are always great when they mix in science and, and the supernatural and this is this is another shining example. It also helps that you've got Emile Hirsch and Brian Cox, both actors, no more for their dramatic roles. I think The Autopsy of Jane Doe is a an early, it's definitely Emile Hirsch's first step into, into horror. He's done several more since, but this was his, his first horror. And Brian Cox dabbles occasionally, but by setting them into this chamber piece where the chamber is a building that many of us have nightmares about and most of us won't visit until we're not aware that we're visiting one. It all combines together to create this really, really uncomfortable environment and like I say, the later in the day that you can watch this, the more terrifying it becomes because all the noise of the outside world and of inside your own house will slowly slip away, leaving you fully able to immerse yourself into this dark and, and chilling world. So there you have it. That's my Halloween playlist. You know, start your day in the afternoon and go the final girls into St Maud, into the hollow, don't forget the Maud wine, into the night house and then end as late as you dare with the autopsy of Jane Doe. If you should decide to pick any or all of these films, you know, let me know. I'm on social media at Gizmo Shikari. So give me a follow and, and let me know. I'd love to hear if any of you take on board any of my suggestions. Happy Halloween all. We've had three films so far. Weren't your top two? So number two would be? Number two is... In some respects, I guess it is technically my favourite horror film because okay. I would put this as one of my, in fact, my fourth favourite film of all time. Wow. Um, but I don't consider it the um, scariest horror film, which is sort of how I've thought about this. Um, so I'm putting it in at number two. Okay. And I did mention it earlier. For, uh, that is how I opened for my second, my number two in this um, Halloween playlist with 1991's Best Picture winner, The Silence of the Lambs. Now, The Silence of the Lambs brings up often the question of, well, is this really a horror film? Yeah. Or is it more of a psychological thriller? Yeah, well, yeah. Maybe it's a psychological horror thriller. Yeah. Um, I've gone back and forth on this a few times, and I used to think of it as a thriller. Yeah. Um, but um, my sort of greater engagement with the horror genre has led me to think, hang on a minute, I think I may have an, a, at least a definition, at least for me, about what a horror film is, and The Silence of the Lambs fits that. And perhaps more pertinently, the first time I saw The Silence of the Lambs, it scared the bejesus out of me. <laughs> now, unlike the previous three mentioned, I am still yet to see this film on the big screen. It's, really? Um, 
Yeah, right. it's, I'm very annoyed that there was a screening actually at my local art cinema um, sometime a few years back. Mm. Not in the last two years, obviously. Um, but mm. I was away that weekend. I'm like, damn it, the Silence of the Lambs is showing and I'm, and I'm away. <laughs> How dare me? How dare awesome, me? isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Um, but here's the thing. I have seen it many times on yep. TV. And the very first time I watched it was on a is in my when i was an undergraduate in my um hall of residence room yeah small tv mm. single speaker yeah black and white <laughs> okay so pretty te and technically this was not good these were not good viewing conditions not really no they're not the best no and it scared the shit out of me <laughs> um and that i think that is testament to a number of things um I mean, there are many you know, terrifying things about the movie. Um, the fine, you know, the final sequence when Clarice Starling is in Buffalo Bill's basement and yep. watching her through night vision goggles. Ah, yeah. We'll come back to something related to that in a minute. Um, and of course, every scene when um, Doctor Hannibal Lecter is on screen. Yes. Um, uh, the, for instance, hit point when he escapes from custody, yeah. um, very savagely killing a couple of um, police yeah. officers. That, that's moment, where it the, moves towards horror more than psychological thriller, isn't it? Definitely those elements. Well, I think it's earlier. Yeah, because, is, but... um, the I think, okay, I'm going to share with you my definition of horror. Oh, go on. That horror, might be good. horror is about victimhood. Horror okay. presents the perspective and expresses the situation of the victim. Okay, um, and I think you know, in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, we have these you know, this group of teenagers of young people who are victimized by um, the Sawyer family. In Alien, we have the group of um, Nostromo workers who are um, victimized by their well, both by the alien and by their employer. Yeah. In The Shining, Wendy and Danny are victimized by the Overlook and by Jack, and in yeah. The Silence of the Lambs. Clarice Starling is victimized by pretty much everyone she encounters. <laughs> um, pretty much all men, notably. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, you know, it's it's a I think it's a it's an important um horror film. It is an important detective film, it's an important woman's film. Yeah. Um and I was surprised the first time I saw it because, like, oh, this is very much Starling's film. It's about her. Yeah. And of course, famously, Anthony Hopkins may have won the Oscar for Best Actor in a Leading Role. He's only on screen for 19 minutes. Yeah, yeah. Um, but of course, he makes he has a very memorable presence. Absolutely, yeah. Because yeah. the reason that I consider this a horror film is that we see the victimization. We share the victim perspective of Starling throughout. Yeah. Now, this is not to say that she is in any way a helpless victim. Yeah. She is not someone who is being as it were um yes she's being victimized but she is far from helpless yeah. she is resourceful she is um courageous she is intelligent yeah. she is makes she works her way out of every situation yeah but what makes the film for me it's most terrifying is when dr lecter does the thing that jack crawford says <laughs> you don't want him to do you don't yeah. want hannibal lecter inside your head yeah and the moments where um, you have the interchanges between them and the single scariest point for me is the uh, last face-to-face -face meeting between them yes. when uh, Dr. Lecter can, you know, forces Starling to 
reveal her childhood trauma about yeah. when she encountered. Um, you still wake up sometimes in the dark, don't you, and hear the screaming of the lambs. <laughs> now, this is a movie that is quite easy to talk about in relation to performances. However, yeah. I think those performances are only as effective as they are because of the way Jonathan Demi um, shoots the film. Yeah. This I always think of this film as being very sparse. It is stripped down. It is it very... Is. Um, yes. It's very, um, it's very straightforward. Yeah. Um, and that helps bring the viewer in. There's yeah. a lot of traveling shots. There's a lot of point of view shots, yeah. particularly during those interchanges. Yeah. Normally, you have a conversation scene. It's shot over each actor's shoulder. Yeah. But Demi shoots dialogue scenes in the Silence of the Lambs camera with actors looking directly into yeah. the camera which yeah. means that we, the viewer, are placed in that position. Yeah. And when you are in Starling's position and you've got Hannibal Lecter staring at you with, note, Anthony Hopkins does not blink, that was yeah. something he integrated into his performance, then that's Dr. Lecter getting into your head. Yeah. And this is uh, why I think we are sharing in that victim status of yeah. Starling of having this, you know, the worst kind of psychoanalysis. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. And yeah. And uh, yeah, so because I find I found the Silence of the Lambs utterly petrifying yeah. on that first viewing and I continue to find it scary, but also finding it so intriguing and interesting throughout. It's so beautifully designed um, that that's why it comes in as my second in brilliant. my Halloween playlist. And a brilliant number two, it is indeed. I, I do like, I, unlike you, have seen this in my soul way back when it was released. Because I am that old. So I saw it back then on the cinema screens and I've seen it many times since. I do think it's a brilliant film. And our final break away from Dr. Vincent. And we'll have Ben Jones, film reviewer, and his favourite horror films. Hi, I'm Ben. I'm a occasional contributor to thegeekshow.co.uk. I do some reviews over there. And I have been a guest on the... Uh, director's uncut podcast uh, with the host there Rob Simpson a really good podcast give that a listen not necessarily the episodes I'm on but just give it a listen in general uh, and I've been asked to come up with sort of like uh, favorite five horror films now it's a bit of a weird one because I don't really have favorite films I love film films are like children to me which sounds really weird now I'm saying that out loud but I've come up with five really good horror films that I think maybe deserve a little bit more love than what you get uh, usually so I'll just jump straight into it I'm going to go first of all is with a 2006 film called Diary directed by Oxide Pang now Oxide Pang is one is one half of the Pang brothers who directed films like uh, The Eye, uh, Bangkok Dangerous. There's also a really good film out there called Recycle that you want to. But I'm going to focus on one of his solo films here called Diary, which starred uh, Charlene Choi and uh, Sean Yu. Now, this is a really odd film as well, in consideration for a lot of what was coming out of uh, sort of like Hong Kong, Taiwan at the time, because it, this gets quite psychological. It has a really good twist, and Charlene Choi, who'd kind of been a bit of a bit player up until that point, she, you know, she was in films like, um, I'm just trying to think off the top of my head, oh, Twins Effect, she was also in New Police Story as well with Jackie Chan. 
so you know where she kind of played second fiddle in a lot of those films so where she comes in here she plays an absolute blinder now this didn't get a lot of play outside of um east asia unfortunately i know it didn't really get a uk release I'm not too sure how, what it did in the US and things like that. It is available out there. You'll probably find it on a lot of the sites uh, like Plex or YouTube or something like that. It's probably out there. I don't know off the top of my head. I bought the DVD years ago. But this one's really well worth tracking down because it kind of goes places. It's very claustrophobic. It's all kind of set in a couple of rooms in a flat. And if you've ever seen a film with a lot of those like Hong Kong flats and things like that, you know the kind of setup already on that one. And it's really good, well worth kind of tracking down on that one. Uh, the next one I'm going to go to is a film from 2008 called Splinter, directed by Toby Wilkins, who also directed the American version of The Grudge, the third one. Um, so The Grudge 3, in other words. Uh, starred Jill Wagner and uh, Paulo Costanzo. Now, these two... These two actors have kind of fallen by the wayside a little bit in the meantime. I know sort of like Jill Wagner does a lot of Hallmark movies. Uh, she was kind of like the on-site host for White, for the US version of, of Wipeout. Uh, whereas in uh, Paulo's kind of done a lot of TV, like Designated Survivor and the upload on Amazon quite recently. Now, this film's a really interesting one. really flew under the radar uh, back in 2008. It, it's kind of like... An, it starts off making you think it's going to be one thing very much. And I don't want to go into too much detail because this is available on Amazon Prime at the moment in the UK. And I really recommend you go out and, and give this a watch. It kind of makes you think it's going to go down one route, then completely goes off on a tangent in another direction. I mean, it does kind of hint at that very much at, at the beginning that it was going to go in this direction because it kind of leads you down. And you think, oh, OK, how are they going to kind of introduce that, especially when they start bringing all the characters together but yeah it's really surprised really undervalued it, it's one of those films that deserves a lot more people uh, getting their eyes on this so yep that's uh, splinter from 2008 now the next one is a real deep cut i don't really know anybody else who's seen this film and i'm not saying i'm the only other person who's seen this but it's a really wonderful film from South Korea called Shadows in the Palace from 2007, directed by Kim Mi Jung. Now, what's really interesting about this, she did this film in 2007, and that's it. That's her only directing credit, and it's a wonderful film. It's kind of like a period set murder mystery, but with a real supernatural horror element to it. And it just gets you kind of looking over the shoulder of each and every character because you don't know where the th threat is really going to come from and it has these big massive kind of um oh I, I, huge kind of bringing together of all these characters um and it just oh, it, it's just absolutely it's a world that is rich it's, it's kind of like the, the ins and outs of a palace and there's lots of people so as i say it's a period set um, and most of the staff are women, and they don't really interact with any of the men. Anyway, one of the one of the uh, women have found is found dead, and it's up to the physician to find out who did it and why and how and what. And it is it goes all over the place, and it is one of the most enjoyable blind buys I've ever had. And literally, the only reason I bought it was basically to make sure I got free shipping from YesAsia.com like fifteen years ago, and. 
honestly one of the best decisions I've ever made. One of those blind buys that has just paid off. And I've been shouting from the rooftops about this film for years. And unfortunately, it doesn't seem to be getting any traction anywhere. Uh, again, availability, not too sure on that one, I got to say, because I got the DVD many years ago. But well worth tracking down at Shadows in the Palace from 2007. Uh, now, coming down to the last two, we have, uh, first of all, a film... Oh, I've got to pick between two now. I'm looking at them both. Okay, I'm going to go with this one. We're going to go with 1971's The Blood on Satan's Claw, uh, directed by P, uh, Piers Haggard, who directed uh, Quatermass, The Conclusion, and a film from 1981 called Venom. Uh, stars Linda Hayden, uh, who was in a lot of those Confessions movies with uh, Robin Asquith. You probably, you've probably heard of them. Very similar to the kind of like the carry-on films at the time. Not recommended. And it also has uh, Wendy Padbury, who was in Doctor Who as Zoe Harriet, uh, Patrick Troughton's uh, companion. Well, one of one of the, his companions. This is folk horror. Blood and Say's Claw is folk horror done at its best. It taps into that kind of small town, old fashioned thinking and the prejudice, prejudices, I'll get my, put my teeth back in, the prejudices that come along with that, it really kind of, you've got a lot of people who think they are above a lot of, uh, a lot of the townsfolk and things like that, and how easy rumours can spread. A really good companion piece with this actually would be Lucio Fulci's Don't Torture a Duckling, which again is, kind of really plays on that small town mentality. Uh, but this, it just plays the pitch perfect. Uh, it is folk horror at its very best. And re I can't recommend it enough. I know it's got a, few, a bit of traction in recent years because obviously people are falling in love with Hammer all over again. And, uh, you know, because of that, Tygon Films and, and companies like that are coming a lot more into focus. But yeah, The Blood on Satan's Claw, absolutely brilliant. Well worth tracking down, get on that. Now, the last one I've got here. Now, this is a deep cut, but I think it's available on YouTube. It's a made-for-TV movie from 1990 called Wheels of Terror. Now, this was uh, directed by Christopher Kane. He directed Young Guns and The Principal. Yes, that young guns. Uh, also stars Joanna Cassidy, who is in films like Blade Runner, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Chain Reaction, Ghost of Mars, um, Vampire in Brooklyn. She was in loads of things. She, she's one of those faces you'd recognise her if you saw her. Now this, I'm going to say, I'm going to kind of give you the outline to it and you can probably raise an eyebrow. I'm just fighting off the cat as well to make sure he doesn't jump on the microphone. Um, so this is about a minibus driver in Arizona who kind of takes kids back and two from school. And they've done a really good job. You know, she's kind of moved there quite recently with a daughter. And then this evil car shows up. And you can tell it's evil car because it's dirty. You've never seen the driver. Think like the it's like the smaller brother from the of the truck from Jewel. And it's it's grimy, it's dirty, and but it's it's stealing kids. It, it, basically, whoever's in this is, is steal, picking up children and running off with them. Well, one day, he picks up the daughter of our main character, the bus driver. And then for the rest of the movie, it literally is the bus driver chasing the car. And it, it's absolutely fantastic. And I can't 
kind of emphasize enough the, the actual set piece for a made for tv movie and i can't emphasize that enough a made for tv movie it is one of the best car chase movies i have seen and it is absolutely a horror movie 100 percent people kind of i'd say I've, I've said this now and i'm going to give an honorable mention in a moment to another film that i think is is deserving of, of some love but this, I can't emphasise enough. It is absolutely brilliant. Wheels of Terror, 1990. Go and track it down. I think it's on YouTube. Uh, made for TV, absolutely brilliant. One of the best hor unknown horror films out there. And I say it's just one that you kind of sit down and you can just get into it straight away. Because it, it's, whilst it doesn't challenge, it is inventive in many, many ways. So yeah, really good. Love that film. Uh, just want to give a quick shout out to another film called Rolling Vengeance, 1987, uh, directed by Stephen uh, Hillard Stern, starring Ned Beatty and Don Michael Paul. This is Revenge with a Monster Truck. Yeah, OK, I, I, you're probably laughing to yourself right now, but this is brilliant. It's like a it's a really polite film. It's like if the Canadians made horror films now i know there was all that canuck exploitation and films like that but this is honestly that everybody's wearing uh, canadian tuxes and what it is it's about this lo this small town middle of nowhere you've got a haulage company and they're just trying to make ends meet but like the local mayor owns the bar that kind of brings in most of the trade and somehow anyway all gets crossed off and he starts picking off the family of these truckers so what do you do when he murders your father, when somebody rapes your girlfriend, then basically destroys your life? Do you go to the police? No. You modify a monster truck and go out for revenge. And that is Rolling Vengeance from 1987. It's fantastic. I can't honestly. And the end of it, actually, and I'm not going to spoil anything, but the ending is really gripping. I was really surprised by just how gripping the end of that film was because you kind of saw, oh, hang on, which way are they going to go with this? Are they... And then it just... Oh, brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. I can't recommend that enough. But yeah, just kind of go through those again. So that was Diary from 2006, Splinter from 2008. We have Shadows in the Palace from 2007, The Blood on Satan's Claw from 1971, Wheels of Terror from 1990 and as an honourable mention Rolling Vengeance from 1987. Well thanks very much for this it's really appreciated my name's Ben you can follow me on Twitter at Cymraig Samurai and that's C-Y-M-R-E-I-G-S-A-M-U-R-A-I Cymraig Samurai on Twitter and that's it thanks very much take care bye. <laughs>
overlooking the shining and the various homes and the basements the cellars yeah the yeah, yeah. Of the lands. yeah yeah Ooh. but all of these pale in comparison <laughs> to the relentless unremitting dread of being trapped in a cave deep underground as we see in 2005's the descent that is a great film good choice Oh, yeah. Neil Marshall's second film after Dog Soldiers and clearly his peak. I've seen a lot of the stuff he's done recently, including his recent Belair. And meh is the most I can say for these. (laughs) But The Descent um, is one that I saw in the cinema in 2005. And afterwards, I thought, you know what? I never want to go caving. Um, I think a lot of people have said that after the century. I mean, you know, watching Jaws, I'm okay to go in the sea. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You know, watching The Shining, I'd be okay to go to a hotel in the mountains. Absolutely. Watching The Descent. No, thank you. No, 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 no. Caving, not for me. No. Um, And what I think, one of the reasons for that is that The Descent is really frightening from its opening. It's got this atmosphere of dread from the start. and then it has the incredibly tragic um, events and its opening sequence, um, uh, so which in, which is also you know, terrifying. And then we get a, um, an, a jump scare, wake up from a dream shortly after that. But then we get into just going down into the cave and being under there. That itself is terrifying. Yeah. And then, of course, there's a point when our lead character, Sarah, played by Shauna McDonald, she's trying to get through this very narrow space now i'm not generally claustrophobic but oh god did i feel claustrophobic when she was forcing her way through that tunnel um and then of course the roof caves in and they're trapped and i mean oh shit we are trapped in a cave underground no one knows we're here because one of our team members is a fucking idiot (laughs) (laughs) um yeah that i mean so by that point, I was very, very tense. I'm like, oh, I don't like this. This is very, very uncomfortable. Yeah. And I already, I'd read about the film. I knew what was coming. And and then there comes a point, which is, uh-huh, I, I just recently wrote a piece about um, top five um, jump scares. Right. And um, which is going on the um, independent um, film library website. So check that out. Um, and... Yeah, the point in the descent when we anyone who's seen the film knows what I'm talking about. Um, it's the point when we first first time we clearly see one of the creatures underground, one of the crawlers. One of our um, six uh, cavers gets out a video camera. She switches on the night vision. Yeah, night vision. Going yeah, to the night vision. And she's moving the camera around, and we think, "Oh shit, she's going to get catch one of them in the viewfinder, isn't she?" And sure enough, she does. Yeah. And then we see one of these ferocious-looking creatures, yeah. as one review described them, like the bastard offspring of Gollum and Nosferatu. <laughs> um, and I and I tell you, when I first saw that saw the descent back in two thousand five, when that moment appeared i screamed out loud in the cinema um and i don't think i've done that i have not done that so many other times i can tell you yeah. and it still gets me even though i know yeah. it's coming it still gets like <laughs> it's oh and it, it, what is and if you stick with the cool. um sorry go on 
I was just it, it's one of those perfect jump scares because even the first time you you see it, you know the jump scare is coming, and yet it still makes you jump. And every time afterwards, it's exactly the same. It makes you go. <gasps> but yeah, that's what a jump yeah. scare should be, isn't it? So absolutely, yeah, it's it's perfectly done. Um, yeah. But what works further on is that the descent is um, not only is it. Um, terrifying in its environment and in yep. its creature designs, um, and in, in the way it looks, you know, because interestingly, the actors to a large extent were lighting themselves, yeah. So, we are very much placed in their position, you know, yep. we are with them in the cave, and again, there's that sense of the victimhood is really being um, enhanced because you know, all we can see is what they can see, and then it's complete and then it is so as i said it's relentless and it is so bleak in that they're trapped underground yeah oh dear and now they're being hunted <laughs> oh shit and some of them are, and one of them's dead and one of them's been severely injured and someone's got to kill her best friend and they're going to try to get away and they almost get away but not quite and then if you watch the british cut rather than the american cut the ending is such an incredible gut punch and yeah, as the camera pulls out and we're left with that, an image that is simultaneously one of sort of, well, it's an image of resignation and mm. acceptance, but no hope, no mm. um, no future, and out we come, and yeah. Mm. Uh, what happens to the American cut? Oh, in the American cut, um, it ends slightly earlier. So Sarah escapes from the cave, she finds the car, she oh. drives... She's driving away and then she pulls over. She turns and she sees um, her friend uh, Juno, well, <laughs> friend Juno there, and it ends. All right. The implication being that, yes, she's escaped, but she's going to be forever haunted by this, which is true. Yeah. I would, can you imagine the therapy? Yeah. <laughs> Whereas, as we know in the British cut, the original cut, what happens is she does that and then she wakes up still in the cave. Yeah. She has this sort of. Um, hallucination of her daughter who's you know we know is dead and then we yeah. hear the sound of the crawlers approaching and that's the end yeah yeah um, but yeah the the american ending allowed for um, a sequel yes which i've never seen and i don't want no to. i haven't either no um because yeah i think i think the descent is a perfect horror film yeah. it is a perfect nightmare yeah. and anytime i just you know i, I want to feel a terrified and b yeah Hopeless. Well, well, I can watch the news, <laughs> yeah. or I can watch the descent. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Very similar at the moment, aren't they? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. I must admit, I've, I've what, only what, ever what, seen uh, the British cut of it, so I, I didn't realise the Americans had cut same. off that that end bit and made it a a nicer finish, I suppose. Not quite nicer, but yeah, slightly, slightly a bit yes. of hope at the end, maybe. Yeah, which gave it gave it survival. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Thank you very much. They are a brilliant top five horror films. I think they would suit anyone for a nice Halloween watch just to scare them as much as they possibly can this Halloween. Yeah. So, yeah. That's what Halloween's about, being scared, isn't it? I'm sure it is. Totally. Yeah. Thank you very much for joining me. And you will join right. me again later on in this series, a series of specials that are coming out, talking about your favourite film, which is... Well, should, we, should we trail it? Should we say... Do you want to? Yeah, all right then. On, tune in in a tune in in the future to hear uh, me wax lyrical about <laughs> Michael Mann's 1995 crime opus Heat. Ooh.
Yes, I have lots to say about that. Actually, you have a lot more to say about it, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for joining me, Vincent. It's been wonderful, and I'll put all of your details into the show notes. Thanks so much. Bye. All right. Thank you. Thanks once again, Vincent, for coming along and talking with me there. There will be another episode with Dr. Vincent Gain later on in this short run of specials that we're having. So it's been a while since we've had some proper episodes with me and Gary talking. That's all going to change come the new year, hopefully. Uh, Gary is working on some other projects at the moment, so I've just been doing some interviews on my own, and a few of them will be coming out over the next few weeks. The very next one will be with Mr. Sefi Carmel, who is a composer. Sefi and I had a chat about Inception, and here is Sefi's trailer for that film. My favourite film is Inception. Um, I think it's a masterpiece on many levels. It's a masterpiece of the way it's written and directed. Chris Nolan is my favourite director as well. From the level of screenplay direction, the cinematography uh, and the, the visual vision of this film, it's, it's you know, um, it's a mind-bending landmark piece of filmmaking visually. It's a landmark score uh, and sound work of sound art. Uh, the acting in it is fantastic. And it's really, truly a very complex mind game that Nolan is playing with the audience on many, many levels. Yeah, it's very well worth a watch. Thanks very much, Sefi. Thanks very much to everyone who came along to help me with the Halloween episode today. That's Dr. Vincent Gain, Cat Hughes, Rob Simpson, Ben Jones. It's been great. Enjoy your Halloweens, and hopefully you will hear my lovely tones very soon when we talk to Sefi about Inception. Bye-bye for now. Finally, thanks to Acast for hosting the website and to Max Smith for the theme tune composition. To get in touch with the podcast, remember that website is www.myfavoritefilm.com. Whoa!